So if you've got your Bibles there, let's open up to Exodus chapter 30. Last week, we explored chapter 29 and learned how we are consecrated or, or set apart for service. And our key verse was 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. And it says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us his task of reconciling people to him. So God set aside Aaron and his sons to be his ministers and his priests. And we looked at how that applies to us. That was, that was good. So now we're in chapter 30. And we're going to learn about a few things here. We're going to learn about the altar of incense, which is prayer. And we're also going to learn about the bronze laver, which is the word of God. Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to understand. Lord, you promise in, in John that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding and of your word, and you will lead us into all truth. And Lord, I pray you guide me in what I speak, and Lord, that you will reveal truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So as we um, keep on reminding ourselves, uh, the tabernacle both pictures and points to Jesus Christ. So everything about the tabernacle points to Jesus. And the altar of incense is no exception. The brass altar that we looked at in chapter 27 where they'd burn their sacrifices portrays Jesus in his first coming where sin was judged, so the payment for sin. The golden altar of incense speaks of his present work and his second coming. So this altar is only about one and a half feet wide, one and a half feet deep and about two feet high. So it's only a small piece of furniture and it represents prayer. So Jesus, our high priest, is pleading on our behalf. He's interceding on our behalf. And he's constantly bringing us before the Father. Now, sometimes our prayers don't get answered the way we hope. Have you ever had a prayer that's not been answered? Well, it, some, this is just, there's lots of reasons why, but this is one particular reason. Sometimes the Lord is answering prayers we forgot about. So, for example, Lord, make me a godly man or woman. Give me patience. Give me depth. Bring me holiness. Okay, the Lord says. So a challenge comes our way. <laughs> Why am I in this predicament? <laughs> What's going on? Have you forgotten about me? Don't you care? God says, I'm answering your prayer. So that's why we need Jesus as an intercessor, a high priest who loves us, who sees the big picture, who knows what we ask for and what's coming down the road in the future. So I've got a verse here. It talks about Jesus praying for Peter. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So that's an example of intercession where Jesus knows what's going to happen and he's praying for us. I just want to go into this a little bit. It says there that, that your faith should not fail. Well, it looks like Peter's faith failed if you look at what he did. 
The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. <laughs> well, I, I, the way I see it, it's not his faith that failed, but his hope failed. Okay, Because when we have hope, it, Romans 5.5 5 says, And this hope will not lead to disappointment. But when we lose hope, we become disappointed. We become um, disillusioned. So why did Peter's hope fail? Why did he end up denying the Lord? Well, put yourself in Peter's shoes. When he saw Jesus being led away in ropes, being brought to Caiaphas, he lost hope. Remember what Peter was hoping for? He was hoping that Jesus would be the, the one to redeem Israel from the, you know, being in bondage to the Roman law, to the Roman Empire. But now that hope was gone. He has been arrested. So for us, we can be in the same situation. We can be in Peter's shoes or his sandals, so to speak. We believe in the Lord. We have a love for the Lord. But our hope has been dashed because we can't figure out how what's happening to us can possibly work out for good. So we lose hope and we give up. And I want to just tell you this little story to show us how hope is so important for us. A number of years ago, a study was done on Norwegian wharf rats. After being thrown in the open water, one group paddled for about three and a half minutes before drowning. A second group was thrown in, but plucked out right before they drowned. So they almost drowned, but they didn't drown. The next day, when the rats were thrown back into the water, these are the rats that were plucked out of the water, scientists were astonished to find them able to tread water for 45 minutes or more. Evidently because they were hoping that they would be rescued as they were the previous day. So that's a power of hope. So the same is true with us. If we don't have hope that we'll be rescued, we quickly sink. But if we have hope that a rescue is coming, we can tread water through the hard times. We have Christ, our high priest, praying for us. We have hope. God has not forgotten about us. God is there. He's batting for us, so to speak. And another thing that gives us hope is the way things are going to end for us. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So for some of us, God willing, it'll be the rapture. For some of us, we'll go through the curtain of death. We'll, we'll go into God's kingdom or into heaven that way through, through, through dying. But looking for, we're looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we keep our eyes on him, we will have hope. So Jesus, as our high priest, knows that we have Simon-like tendencies, Simon Peter. He knows that we're going to get shaken, that we're unstable sometimes. But he's praying for us that our faith won't fail. He's holding us up. And so when we do fail, God will lift us up again. He will help us to get through. And then we can strengthen others, just like Peter. Verse 3. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. So this is the altar of incense covered in gold. So compare this to the altar where the burnt offerings were offered on. That was made of brass. Brass is the metal of judgment. 
Jesus was judged on the cross when he bore our sins. The altar here in chapter 30, however, the, the altar of incense of prayer, is not covered in brass but with gold. Gold is the metal of deity. Why? Because Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And when he comes back, he will not come back as a suffering servant, but as a king of kings and lord of lords. Continuing verse 3, And you shall make for it a moulding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the moulding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So like all the other bits of furniture, they had rings with poles through so that people could walk and carry. Also, there's a crown or a moulding of gold around the altar because when Jesus comes back, instead of wearing a crown of thorns, he'll be wearing a crown of gold. And it also served a practical purpose to stop the incense from falling off. Verse 6, if you, And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with, with you. So the ark of the covenant is in the Holy of Holies, that section of the temple, the tabernacle, where it's all sealed off with the veil or the curtain. So if you look at um, Revelation chapter 8, we're not going to go there today, but the incense speaks not only of the prayers of the Saviour on our behalf, but also of our intercessory ministry on behalf of others. So it's like God collects our prayers. That's a picture we get. He gets some of the prayers of the saints and, and throws it down to earth with fire. On the altar of incense, why is there coals of fire to make all the smoke come up? Well, prayer requires sacrifice. There is nothing harder to do in my spiritual life than pray. Uh, that is so true for me. I don't know about you guys, but I find it hard to get down on my knees and pray sometimes. Why? I believe it's because Satan opposes it so vehemently, so so strongly. And why does he do that? Why does he oppose us and try to stop, stop us from praying? Well, he knows that's where the power is. Just as the altar of incense was the piece of furniture closest to the mercy seat, we are never closer to the Father than when we're in prayer. Now, just a little story here, to a, a bit of an um, analogy to help us to think of how we should pray. Son of David, have mercy on me, cried the sorrow Phoenician woman. Yet Luke tells us Jesus walked by as though he had not heard her. Son of David, have mercy, she cried again, but Jesus kept going. This is interesting. The phrase Son of David was a Jewish term used by Jewish people to address the Jewish Messiah. This woman, however, was a Gentile. She had heard stories about what had taken place in Israel, about Jewish people who were blind or leprous, crying out to the Son of David who, had, who healed them. So she used the formula. But it didn't apply to her. It was religion. It wasn't real. It wasn't until she said, Lord, help me, that Jesus stopped in his tracks and healed her daughter. And you'll find that in Matthew 15, around verse 25. The point there is, keep your prayer simple. Don't think you have to copy how someone else prays or the phrases someone else uses. The altar of incense was small. 
And you can think of it like this. It's not the length of your prayers, but their strength, their sincerity that matters. Jesus said in the New Testament, just don't, don't use repeating words. Don't, don't pray with long, repetitive prayers. Just get to the point. Uh, verse 7. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. So, what does prayer do for us? Well, this incense, if you look at the ingredients, we'll get to that later, it's made of sweet ingredients. So when it burns, it smells sweet. And it tells us there's a sweetness about people who pray. Pray for your enemies, Jesus says, and the implication is that if we're praying for our enemies, we'd also be praying for our friends and our family. Because the first people we pray for is our families. So if you're not praying for your family, then at least treat them like your enemy and pray for them. (laughs) So... All right. Now, it's impossible to be angry with those for whom we're praying because God changes our hearts and a sweet-smelling fragrance will replace the stench of bitterness and unforgiveness in our lives. So God will change us and we'll become a sweet fragrance, a sweet attitude instead of bitterness and unforgiveness. Verse, the second half of verse 7. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. David prayed in Psalm 141 verse 2, Accept my prayer as incense offered to you, and my upraised hands as an evening offering. So as I said before, incense in Scripture is always a picture of prayer. So Jesus, our faithful friend and great high priest, is praying for us at this very moment. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, 24 and 25, But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore he is able, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So I made that last line bold. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. That's what God is doing for us. He saves us and then he intercedes for us. And not one of his prayers will fall off the altar. They are all heard, which is why he intercedes for us with exceeding joy. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So there's joy in prayer. Uh, Verse 9, You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. It's just for the incense. It's just for prayer. So unlike the brass altar, Blood was not to be shed on the altar of incense because it was by one offering that our salvation was secured. Hebrews 10.14 Jesus' offering on the cross, depicted by the altar of burnt offering, was complete. So verse 10, And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So the horns, we sang about, we read about that in, um, 
in the Psalm 89 we read this morning. So horns in Scripture always speak of power, our strength. So the horns of the four corners of the altar of incense remind us of the incredible power of prayer. More than anything else you do in your spiritual life, Satan will try and keep you from praying. We need to make prayer a priority in our lives to make the rest of our lives revolve around the time we have given to God for prayer and Bible study and fellowship with other believers. I know for myself that I tend to revolve, or sometimes, I tend to revolve around work. Okay, I start work at this time and so everything's going to fit around that. But I want to give you five principles that have helped me to pray effectively. And now, I'm not telling you I'm a prayer guru or prayer warrior, and there's, there's a lot. this is not exhaustive, and I still struggle with prayer myself. But these are five things that have helped me. Firstly, it's on the screen up here. Pray with humility and dependency. And what I mean by that is God is powerful and we are powerless. We recognize that we are completely dependent on Him. So we come with the right attitude. We pray according to the will of God. That's according to God's plan. We pray according to the nature or character of Jesus, that is, out of love and being unselfish. We pray with faith, believing that God is willing and able to do what we ask. And five, we pray with perseverance. We don't ever, ever, ever give up praying for other people. So let's just go through each one of those. Firstly, pray with humility and dependency. God is powerful when we are powerless, dependent on him. Acts 17.28, For in him we live and move and have our being. The Bible even says that we have our breath in him. I love this verse. This is from the Amplified Version. For this I labor unto weariness, striving with all the superhuman energy which he so mightily enkindles and works within me. So this is Paul praying. So he's laboring unto weariness. So yes, prayer is going to make us tired. Prayer is going to wear us out. But it's not by our energy. Striving, we, we, we strive with God's power. God enables us. God works in us with this superhuman energy. I like the way it uses that word in the Amplified Version. And the next one was pray according to the will of God, according to God's plan. So reading the word of God prayerfully and praying according to the word of God go together. There are many prayers in the Bible which we can use as model prayers or templates or which can guide us in our prayers. But even with all that, those examples of how to pray, how do we know what is the most effective prayer for a certain person? What is their need right now? How we, you know, we want our prayers to be effective, so we want to pray according to their need. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in our prayers, because as I just said, our prayers are only effective if we pray according to God's will, but often we don't know what God's will is. When we take the time to pray, I believe one of our starting prayers should be, Lord, Please show me what or who you want me to pray for and how to pray for them. And then take time to listen for any prompting that the Spirit gives you. It's okay to be quiet and stop talking when you pray. Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. 
So sometimes we just got to be quiet and listen in our prayers. And Romans eight twenty six and twenty seven. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us, helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So just remember that we do not know how we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit does. So we need to ask God to reveal those things to us. Now the next thing is pray according to the nature or character of Jesus, that is to be loving and unselfish. This is talking about our motive. Are we praying for our will to be done, my will to be done, or God's will to be done? Are we praying for things that will benefit us, things that we want for ourselves, or are we praying that God's will will be done in his kingdom, magnifying and glorifying the Father? So are we praying according to our selfish, sinful nature, or unselfishly by the Spirit, our new nature? So I've just got this verse here from John. John 14, 13-14, says, and I will do, I myself will grant, whatever you ask in my name, as presenting all that I am, so that the Father may be glorified and extolled through the Son. Yes, I will grant, I myself will do for you, whatever you ask in my name, as presenting all that I am. So that's a promise that he gives us. Anything that we pray according to the will of God and according to his character or his heart will be answered. And that is a promise. How do we get to that stage? Well, it's a process. It's a, we, we progress in our life. It's our sanctification. So the more we love Jesus, the more we are sanctified, the more we become like him, changed from glory to glory by the Spirit, then the more effective our prayers will be because we'll be praying more and more as Jesus would pray. Why? Well, because we'll be loving people as Jesus does and will therefore share his true concern for them. And the more we love someone with God's agape love, the more fervent or intense our prayers become because we care so much more about them. So the more you love someone, the more heart you put into your prayers. You know, the more, if I can say it, the more you mean it. James 5.16 The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. So I'll read that again. That's the amplified version again. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Now I haven't mentioned this, but notice it says a righteous man. So we need to be um, free from any kind of habitual sin. That will also hinder our prayers. The fourth one was pray with faith, believing that God is willing and able to do what we ask. James chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Only it must be in faith that he asks with no wavering, that is, no hesitating, no doubting. For the one who wavers, who hesitates or doubts, is like the billowing surge out at sea that is blown hither and thither and tossed by the wind. For truly, let not such a person imagine that he will receive anything he asks for from the Lord. For being as he is, a man of two minds, 
hesitating, dubious, irresolute. He is unstable and unreliable and uncertain about everything he thinks, feels and decides. We need to have faith. We need to believe that what we're that God is there and that he can answer our prayers. And the next verse, just to about faith, is an example from Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew 21, 19 to 21. And as he saw one single leafy fig tree above the roadside, he went to it but found nothing but leaves on it. And the little bracket there says seeing that in the fig tree the fruit appears at the same time as the leaves and he said to it never again shall fruit grow on you and the fig tree withered up at once when the disciples saw it they marveled greatly and said how is it that the fig tree has withered away all at once and jesus answered them truly i say to you if you have faith a firm relying trust and do not doubt You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. Now, how do you know, or how do you tell if something's easy or hard? You could say by the resistance, so, you know, it's harder to push a heavy car than it is to push a light car, right? Well, another way of saying that is the difficulty of a task is measured by the agent doing the work. The difficulty of a task is measured by the agent doing the work. So if I'm trying to push my car, it's going to be really hard. And if it's going uphill, I can't do it. But if I get a tow truck, it's a piece of cake. Off it goes. Okay. So the difficulty of a task is measured by the agent doing the work. If you've got something that's really strong doing the work, or someone really strong doing the work, then it's not difficult. But if you've got someone who's weak doing the work, then it is difficult. And we need to remember that God is very strong and he doesn't find anything difficult. So actually, there's nothing difficult that we ask for in prayer. Did you realize that? Not for God. And we're praying and we're asking God to do things. So there's nothing actually difficult to ask for in prayer from God's perspective. And we should be praying with God's perspective. Now, the last one is pray with perseverance. Don't ever, ever, ever give up. So. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And also Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to turn coward, faint, lose heart and give up. So I'm going to read the the entire parable from the New Living, but the Amplified Version, I just like that word it says there, not to turn coward, to faint, to lose heart and give up. What's the opposite of being coward? Courageous, yes. Yeah, okay. We need to be courageous in our prayer. Luke chapter 18, 1 to 8. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show them that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. But this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he 
rendered a decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him night and day? Will he keep putting them off? The answer there is no. I tell you, he will grant justice quickly to them. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have persistence in faith? So that persistence is persistence in is from the Amplified Version. Jesus here is saying, how many will I, when I come back, will be persistent in prayer? Will their faith stand the test of time? Will they be courageous? So, just to repeat the five things, pray with humility and dependency. Pray according to the will of God, God's plan. Pray according to the nature or character of Jesus, that is the right motive. Pray with faith and pray with perseverance. And the other one, as I mentioned before, is have a, um, a life which is pure, without any um, habitual sin, because that will close the door to your prayers. And another one, just thinking about it, is husbands dwell with your wives so that the prayers will not be hindered. So if your family is not working, if you've got tension in your family, then that's also going to hinder your prayers. So you need to deal with that. Okay, let's go on to verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel was twenty gerahs, the half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So most of the offerings we've seen so far, and we'll see later on, are voluntary offerings. Now, the off- this offering is called the ransom of souls, and it's mandatory, it's not a voluntary offering. And it has to be collected whenever a census is taken. If you look at, we won't go there now, but if you look at First Chronicles 21, Satan tempted David to number the people of Israel. Why did he do it? He wanted to see how strong the nation was militarily. He wanted to know how many fighting men he had. So the result, just as verse 12 warns of the plague that would be the result of numbering the people, well, 70,000 people died in the plague that followed in First Chronicles when David numbered the people. So numbering the people was not to be done for reasons of pride, but for service and ministry. And the way we do it is, or the way it was supposed to be done in that that culture is to collect half a shekel from every person 20 years and older. And this way, it was a money rather than the people that was counted. So is it wrong for a church to count it, to number its members? Talking about counting people. Well, it all depends on the reason for doing so. If it's out of pride, then it's wrong. Oh, we had 200 people come to our church last week. (laughs) But, what about the shepherd who realized that one was missing and went out to find them? Okay, then the shepherd's heart, you're looking, at it, looking for that person out of love. Now, it's interesting in the New Testament, this offering came to be known as a temple tax. And in Matthew 17, 27, it's um, when the people 
Pharisees, I think, came to Jesus and said, oh, where's your temple tax? He said, oh, go to Peter, go and get fish and pull a coin out of its mouth and that'll be our temple tax for you and me. So that's, that's where that comes from. Verse 15. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, or ransom money, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, some people have made a false doctrine of this. They have said that you can buy your atonement. You can make atonement for your souls by paying money. Okay, but that's not true. Now, can atonement, atonement or redemption be purchased? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, can man be at one with God for a price? Well, not by money. But yes, it can be purchased. And Peter tells us that we're redeemed with not corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. It's First Peter 1, 18 and 19. So we're redeemed. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Great is the day when we realize our lives are not our own. When we say, if the Lord wants to take me through tragedy or difficulty, if he chooses to make me poor, send me to a place where I don't really want to go, and gives me kids or doesn't give me kids, it's okay. I'm not my own. I'll accept his will for my life. And because I've been bought with a price, I, who was once headed for hell, am now destined for heaven. So, for example, why am I still single? Well, you're not your own. Why am I stuck in this job? You were bought with a price. How come I'm going through this problem? Well, God knows you and purchased you with something infinitely greater than silver when he brought you with the blood of his own son. So something I always come back to is, Jesus demonstrated his love for me by suffering for me. In the same way, I can demonstrate my love for Jesus by being willing to suffer for him. Now, how do I do that? I don't go out and purposefully hurt myself. But it means accepting the path that he's chosen for me, which will cause me to grow into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 28, 29, and bring glory to God. And I want to give you a biblical example of this. Acts 9, 15-16. Go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And now I'll go on to Second Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 27 Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have travelled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas, and I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold, 
without enough warm clothing to keep me warm. So what's the point of all this? For the love of Christ compels us because we judge this thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So when we go through hard times, we need to come back to what Jesus has already done for us. If he's willing to do all that for us, are we willing to walk, and he's being willing to walk that path that God gave him for us, are we willing to walk the path that God gives us for him? Uh, Verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. The first thing you would see when you went into the courtyard of the tabernacle was a brass altar. Now, if you walked past that, you would see the brass laver or basin filled with water. So the water was to provide cleansing, restoration, refreshment, renewal, and revival. The water was the word. John 15.3 says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So the word cleanses us. Ephesians 5.25-26 For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. Wash by the cleansing of God's word. So that was the purpose of the bronze laver. Verse 19 in Exodus. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. So, Aaron and his sons were to wash their hands and feet at, not in the laver. So they draw water without, because that would obviously contaminate it if you put your feet into it. So, the word, the water remains pure. Now, why your hands and your feet? Well, that's our work and our walk. Our ministry needs to be cleansed, and so does our walk. Uh, verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So here's the recipe for the anointing oil, which is used throughout Israel's history to anoint three groups of people, prophets, priests, and kings. So when King David was anointed, King Saul was anointed, Samuel was anointed, etc. The high priest, any priest, um, they were anointed to start the ministry. It was with this particular oil. Now, what does oil mean in the scripture? What does it, what does it represent? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. And the anointing oil is a picture of the work of the Spirit. 
So Jesus is our anointed one. The anointing oil is sweet. It's sweet-smelling spices of myrrh, cinnamon, and calamus. So Jesus is sweet. He is never grouchy, discouraged, or depressed. And you think about what is the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Well, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. So the, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit makes us sweet. Verse 26, With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. So this anointing oil was used to anoint all the furniture and the priests themselves. It's interesting in Second Corinthians 2.15 that we're meant to be a sweet fragrance to those around us. Verse 31, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh. That's interesting, isn't it? It shall not be poured on man's flesh. Nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy and shall be holy to you. In addition to being sweet, the anointing oil was not to be placed upon the flesh. Now the flesh is a picture of the sin nature. Jesus, the anointed one, never spent a moment living by the power or pull of sin. So the anointing oil was never to have any contact with that which symbolizes sin. So when we're walking by the Spirit, it's the opposite of walking by the flesh. Verse 33, Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Now, Thirdly, this anointing oil, was we couldn't imitate it. There's no imitation of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So the anointing oil is, the ministry of the Spirit is unique. Unfortunately, there's many people who have tried to imitate the ministry of the Spirit. But it doesn't work. There's no other Saviour, there is no other Holy Spirit. There's no one like him. All others are thieves and robbers and come to kill, steal and destroy. But Jesus was anointed with this oil of holiness because he loved righteousness, because he hated sin. And God anointed him with the oil of gladness more than anyone else. Hebrews 1.9 Verse 34 And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, steak, I can't pronounce that, and Onicha and galburnum and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. Now this oil that we're looking at is for the the burn on the altar of incense. In addition to the anointing oil for the people and the furniture, Moses was to make a perfume made of these other sweet spices. And they're all imported from a long way away. So they're not indigenous to Israel. So what it's, it's kind of like a picture that if we want to be Christ-like, it doesn't come from us. It comes from heaven. It's a heavenly gift, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. If we want to be pleasing to the Father, 
It's not going to be because of our own efforts. James 1, 2-4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the oil of the Spirit um, comes upon us and he gives us the strength to go through and to grow so we can be fully developed, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Verse 35, You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure and holy. So this perfume was to be salted. Now what does salted mean? Well, talking about our prayers, talking about the anointing. For Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. So salty speech in the Bible refers to a speech that is gracious. Grace being unmerited, undeserved or unearned favor, our speech should always show unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor to whom, whoever we talk to, for that is how we are to answer every man. So we're meant to be gracious people, seasoned with salt. We need to speak with words of grace to those who raise questions or who accuse us or whatever happens to us. We, we speak with, with grace. And that is the aroma that pleases the Father. And to finish off, verse 36. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So this, this perfume, this, this prayer is sacred. We must remain holy. I mentioned that before, we've got to remain holy. So the winning combination is to be as gracious to other people as you possibly can be by importing the sweetness of the Spirit from heaven and to seek to be pure and holy in your own life. Now, what do we do? Sometimes we reverse this. We want others to be holy, but we want grace to be poured out on us. <laughs> Jesus, of course, is a perfect example of how grace and holiness are to function. Now, think about this. A little story to finish. While in Samaria a place Jews don't usually visit or didn't usually visit, who did Jesus talk to? Now consider, in a day, in this day, when Jesus, in, in John chapter 4 here, not even the rabbis spoke to their own wives in public. That's how, that's their culture, okay? What did he do? Well, he talks to a woman. Now, when she told him, this is an example of grace, okay? Now, when she told him she didn't have a husband, rather than condemn her for her lie, he commends her for the part of her statement that was true. And as a result, her heart was touched and her city impacted. Now, we might think Jesus should have addressed the issue of her living situation, living, with her, you know, living in sin, but that's not what Jesus did. Why? Well, maybe divorced five times, the chances of this woman getting married again were pretty much zilch. 
leaving the man with whom she was living would have given her no other recourse than prostitution to support herself. So Jesus knew this, and no doubt also knew that in due season she would grow in her understanding of who he was and of what new life in him would mean. Jesus could have come down hard on her and, and it, it really pounded her on her sin. I'm not saying we don't talk about sin, but the way we do it is by grace. Jesus didn't say that, oh, what you're doing is fine, but he was gracious in the way he dealt with her. We have a lot of um, sinful people around us. In fact, we sometimes we fall and we're sinful ourselves. We need to be gracious to each other. We need to also be holy and to be pure. That way we can be sweet. Okay, with this, this sweet anointing, can, people can smell it. They can smell our attitude. They can smell our sweetness. They can smell our graciousness. So, Father, I just uh, thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious to us, Lord. When we sin, Lord, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You don't punish us as our sins deserve. Lord, you're so sweet. You're so gracious. Lord, help us to be the same. Help us to be sweet to be holy, to be gracious, to be seasoned with salt as your Spirit leads us, as your Spirit empowers us, as your Spirit guides us, Lord. And I pray that people will really tell, Lord, that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And, Lord, that you will use us mightily to be your ambassadors, to take your message of reconciliation to this world. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.